Well, um, today we are going to actually conclude our One Hit Wonder series. This is part five of this series, and um, we have been taking this journey through five books of the Bible in these last five weeks. Every one of these books of the Bible has a single chapter. Some of them are quite small. They're all small, but some are even really small. Take up maybe a single page in your Bible. And I think, I mean, I've been having a blast preaching this um, because I don't, it's not necessarily topical because we just let the book talk for itself. And so where, where have we been? We started this series in the book of Obadiah. If you remember, it was a, it's a small book in the Old Testament that is actually a prophecy against the nation of Edom because Israel at the time, if you remember, was being invaded by Babylon and their neighboring nation of Edom decides to kick Israel while they're down. They think they're untouchable because their capital city is built high on a hill and they think that nobody can take us down. And so they ultimately, they say, nobody can take us down and God steps to the microphone and says, I will, and he does. And it's a great message of pride and when you, when you go against God in that way. And then we move from Obadiah to the book of Philemon. Philemon is an explosively powerful little book in the New Testament where Paul is imploring a man named Philemon to do the unthinkable in their day and age. Philemon, if you remember, he was a citizen in Rome who was a well-to-do man. He was wealthy. He hosted a home church in his house. Philemon also had several slaves. One of these slaves, now now, the Bible is not commending slavery. This is just the times they were in. One of these slaves, uh, Onesimus, he cheats or robs from Philemon in some way. We don't know how, but he wronged Philemon, cheated him, wronged him, and then he ran away. And Onesimus finds Paul, who was in prison, Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord, and then he implores Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon and seek forgiveness. So Paul writes a letter to Philemon, and he is imploring Philemon to do the unthinkable, because in the early first century, what Rome does with runaway slaves is they punish them severely, even unto death. And Paul writes Philemon, he says, I want you to accept Onesimus back, but not as a slave, as a brother. Because that's the kind of people we are when we're followers of Jesus. And Onesimus has accepted Jesus in his heart, and he's now one of us, and you will treat him as such. Powerful book of forgiveness and unity and breaking out of cultural norms that are wrong. Powerful little book. And then we went to 2 John and 3 John. Both of them are very similar in content, uh, speaking a lot about uh, deception in the church. John uh, is the, was the disciple of Jesus called the elder. He is older in age. He's an overseer of a network of house churches, and he's writing to these house churches and members uh, warning them of false teaching and things of the sort. Now, if, you, if this is your first Sunday and any of that sounds at all interesting to you, uh, that's great. You can always go to newlifeforkokomo.org. All of our messages are archived online. You can get caught up in the series. But today we will conclude in the book of Jude.
the book of Jude. And so the book of Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. So if you're going to turn with me to the book of Jude, that's where you're going to turn. Um, If you would like to look in a physical Bible uh, and you don't have one with you today, you can always grab the orange Bible in the seat in front of you, turn to the book of Jude. But if you do not own a Bible, I want you to take that orange Bible from the seat in front of you. I want you to write your name in it, and I want you to take it home because at New Life Church, we believe in the Word of God. That's our gift to you in your journey with the faith. So the book of Jude is where we're going to be today. And, uh, and guess who wrote the book of Jude? Jude. You're, you're, all, you're, all, you're doing well, one for one. Um, Jude, uh, it actually starts off where he, he says that, he is the brother of James. James, we know, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so Jude is a half-brother of Jesus. In other words, Jude's parents are Mary and Joseph. And so was James. James' parents were Mary and Joseph. Um, of, but of course, we say he's half-brother because Mary became, conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And um, actually, what's interesting is Jude and James both, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, were some of Jesus' greatest skeptics and critics. They doubted that he was truly the Messiah because uh, they grew up with the punk. You know, they're like, he was my annoying brother. I don't know. I'm sure Jesus was a pleasant child. But anyway, they, they were like, how can this be the one who people? But until his, he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, they became some of the most devoted followers of Jesus and leaders in the church. And so in the the book of Jude then, um, Jude is writing this letter to believers. And so imagine he's writing it for us today. And he's writing to believers to warn true believers to resist false teachers. Have you noticed a theme in these small books that we've been going through? Especially these letters written to the early church, so much of it is about trying to raise awareness that there are false teachings going around the church deceiving people. And if they're deceiving people, that means they're deceptive, but that means they must have enough truth that it looks good, it sounds good, but, the, but these apostles are saying, it's not good. And I would say it was important then, and it's important now, that there are still teachings that are deceiving people, and you get deceived because some, there's enough good in it that it looks good, it sounds good, it feels good, but it's not good. And um, so Judy writes this letter to warn true believers that there are fake believers Their message is different. Because ultimately, there was a popular teaching that was spreading quickly. And remember, this is the early church. And there's this teaching spreading that said that salvation by grace did not obligate a believer to follow scriptural moral code. So there's this this teaching saying you're saved by grace. So all your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. So just keep on going. (laughs) Keep partying. Keep, I mean, you can continue in your immorality. It's all covered by grace. This is awesome. 
And so uh, it's many times referred to today as hyper grace. Hyper grace. It is a grace that covers all your sin. That is true. So you can keep on living the way you want to live and you don't have to live by the moral code of God. And Jude is writing believers saying, do not fall for this trick. And so as a result, these false teachers, they promoted sin without fear of judgment. So keep on sinning, it's covered by grace. This false teaching was causing a divide amongst believers then, and is causing a divide amongst believers now. The issue of sin continues to divide people because we want to be soft on sin. We don't want to be hard on sin. And I think the hardest person to have ever been on sin was God himself. He was so hard on sin that he sent his son to be beaten and crucified to overcome the evil of sin. And so I think God takes sin very seriously, which is why he gave the most expensive currency he had to pay for your sin. He gave his son. And so why then would God, who gave so freely to liberate you from the bondage and darkness and depression and anxiety and consequence of sin, why would he say, Stay on in it. Just keep living in it. He wouldn't. So this false teaching was causing a lot of division then, and it even divides people now. So let's, let's turn to Jude, um, verse 1. Uh, again, like these other letters we read in 2 John and 3 John, right now, like if I wrote a letter to you, I would start off New Life Church. But then they actually start off with who wrote it. And so, who wrote it? Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be to you. Be yours in abundance. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So Jude, he's saying, I was so excited to write to you about this good news, our salvation, what we have in God, but then I had to call an audible. It's as though Jude had had a message to give. He, 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 had, he had something to write, something to celebrate, but he had to call an audible because something was more urgent at that time. And, and, and sometimes we have this shift in our lives where, where even in the ministry as a pastor, sometimes I'm like, man, God's giving me word. I can't wait to share this thing. And then God helps me recognize there is something far more urgent to, to, to preach. And that is what Jude is saying. There is something far more urgent that I need to tell you. And he tells them to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. So the first thing that I want you to know is that there is an urgency to contend for the faith. Jude wrote this letter in the early first century during the, the, the early part of the church. 
There was an urgency then for the early church. And there is an urgency now for the latter church. There is an importance. There is a priority. There is a need. There is a necessity to contend for the faith. And he's going to give us some more here in a second. But, but, but let me ask you, are you equipped to contend? Are you prepared to contend for the faith? This was urgent then, it's urgent now. So let's look at this word contend. One thing I like to do when I prepare for, for my messages is I, I, I use the sources a lot. It helps words uh, kind of give it some brighter meaning and, and maybe broader perspective. And so the word contend has some synonyms, and it means a synonym, if you don't remember, it's not a spice. Um, it is words that mean the same thing. I don't know if I'm describing that right. A teacher can correct me later. Joy Myers. But an, another, uh, in other words, other words for contend would be to confront. We don't like that word. That, fe- that feels harsh. But it means to confront. It means to struggle in opposition, to oppose. It means to strive to debate or dispute earnestly. And earnestly means sincerely, authentically. Earnestly doesn't mean mean. doesn't mean hateful. It means with all sincerity to dispute. Um, just like um, if there were somebody standing um, uh, at the top of Sears Tower in Chicago about to step off the edge and take their life, you would dispute with them. You would oppose them, and you would be sincere. Please do not do this. And that is what it means to contend for the faith. It's not a battle like, like we're angry. It's a battle to rescue. You understand? So a lot of times, I know that when we read Scripture, we're like, yeah, contend for the faith. We're going to take down political parties. We're going to take down naysayers. I want to remind you, the context by which John or Jude is writing is not how you contend for the faith against the world, but how you contend for the faith against false teachers. He will get into later in this book how you can treat the unbelievers, but when it comes to believers that are deceivers, he says, contend for the faith. Debate, dispute, confront, oppose. This is not a license of how to treat lost people. This is how to treat deceivers among us. Does this make sense? Let's look at some antonyms for contend. Antonyms are words that mean the opposite. It means to agree with, to comply with, go along, or in other words, go into hiding, or make peace, retreat, or give in. And so when I look at, sometimes looking at synonyms and antonyms helps me understand and have a better perspective of what the text is trying to say. So in other words, what he's saying is he says, do not give in to this teaching. Resist it. Oppose it. Do not go with the flow. 
And it is easy for us as finite beings in this fallen world to fall for what feels good. If it feels right, it looks right, if it, if it would give, send good vibes, if it, it, if it is more fitting for the culture, it, this, I'm going to follow my feelings because that teaching, that truth feels too hard. I want to tell you to oppose that, to, to contend for the faith. Because if you don't strive for what is right, you will slide into what is wrong. If you do not strive for what is right, you will slide into what is wrong. It is a gradual sinking. If with, where there is no fight, you will fall. Contend for the faith. Again, the context here in Jude, this confrontation, this fight, this dispute, this battle is against false teachers, deceivers, and dividers among them. Among us. So if the language sounds strong, if the language sounds lacking of mercy, lacking of grace, and you're thinking, how are, is this how we're supposed to reach the lost, Pastor Devin, with this great contention, with that kind of mentality? I want you to remember, he's talking about contending for the faith contending for truth, contending for sound doctrine, contending for unity from false teachers. People that claim to have the Spirit but are void of it. And later, Jude, again, will describe how to treat unbelievers. So let's look at Jude verse 4. He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. In other words, he's saying, you have been reading in the writings all your life. Jude actually, he quotes from prophecies in the Old Testament, and I, uh, and I didn't want to like go into a theological college-level course with you this morning, but Jude actually, he uses writings that Jewish people in the first century would have been familiar with. He's quoting from a first Enoch. He's quoting from other books that were written in ancient times that are not included in the Bible, but Jude is quoting them because he knows that his readers would have studied them as part of their Jewish tradition and he's also quoting things from the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, you have been reading for long, long, for a long, long time that there would be these deceivers. And even though you knew there would be, even though that you were taught there would be, they've slipped in under the radar. And I'm here to bring them into light. So certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, watch this, into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. These are ungodly people masquerading around as godly people. It was a problem then, and it's a problem now. He says these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God. The word pervert, it means to twist, to twist the truth. And this is what the devil's just so good at. He's perverted. He twists the truth so that there's just enough truth in it 
but it's actually a lie. The Bible says that his, the native language of the devil is that he is the father of lies. He, there is no truth in him. So he perverts things. Just a little twisting of the truth is no truth at all. And Jude is saying, don't fall for this. This is ungodly behavior. Because they're perverting, they're twisting the grace of God. In other words, there's a truth of grace. The truth of grace is that you are freely forgiven of all your sin. You do not have to work for it. You can't earn it. You can never be good enough to deserve the grace of God. God gives it to you completely freely when you receive it by faith. That's the truth of grace. Grace would be if I got pulled over on 931 out here and I'm zooming past the Chrysler factory and I'm doing 85 miles per hour, the Kokomo Police Department pulls me over, I roll down my window, they give me $1,000 and say, be on your way. I deserved a ticket. I deserved a fine. I deserved consequence and I deserved punishment but I was given grace I didn't just get forgiven I was I was left better than I was that's grace now the perversion of grace that he's talking about is that he would be to say because you received grace on 931 in front of Chrysler Speed all the time, man. Go fast. Be reckless. Be dangerous. There's no consequences, just grace. And that is a twisting of what is true. But instead, when I found Jesus and encountered the grace of God that freely lifted the burden and punishment of sin... It didn't give me a license to continue in my sin, but it gave me a liberty to be free from it forever. And it was encountering grace that actually transformed my life. It didn't justify my life. It didn't justify the way I sinned, but it did bring justification to my sin. And there's a big difference there between justifying sin because it's covered by grace and, being justif and, and having justification from sin. Justification is this theological term we use. It's in the book of Romans. But what it means is you are made just as if you never sinned. And it's amazing. The grace of God is amazing. We want people to encounter the grace of God. But Jude is saying, but there are people going around churches actually telling them because of grace, just keep sinning. It's okay. They use it as a license or for permission for immorality. But by doing so, it denies Jesus at a fundamental level. Paul has a lot to say about this very thing in the book of Romans. It won't be on the screen, but let me read it for you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, The law was brought so that the trespass may increase. In other words, the writings of Scripture were put in place as a mirror 
that when you look into the scripture, you see your flaws. You go, oh, I, I don't measure up to the truth, to the ways of God. I, don't, I see now in my reflection that I'm broken and I need a savior. That's, that was the point of the law, to show you you can't do it on your own. All these, all these little things in the Old Testament, yeah, you're busted, man. Like You're broken up, and you need a Savior. And, and, and so it points us now to the resurrected Christ. It says, but, but watch this, what he says. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That is incredibly good news for you because, it, in other words, your worst day does not outweigh grace. The worst sinner in the world just gets more grace. So I would say that the worst parts of our city are the greatest candidates for revival. The worst sinner is the greatest candidate to be the next follower of Jesus. Because if where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You can't out-sin God. He, his grace is sufficient. It will never run out. There's no deed you've done that grace can't undo. That's what he's saying. Where sin increases, grace increases more. So don't feel bad. Don't, you can't live right enough for God to accept you. He gives you grace. But watch what he says in chapter 6. And this is where if you stop reading in chapter 5, you miss the point. Paul says in chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall I continue driving 85 down 931 to get more paychecks? So that every time I get pulled over, I get some cash. And Paul's like, is that what we're saying? Continue sinning so you can get more grace? Verse 2, he says it, three, three words here. By no means, by no means, is that what we're saying? He says, we are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that, when, that, that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And we were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that as, just as Christ raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 11 says, In the same way, count yourselves, watch this, dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument, now not of righteousness, but as an instrument of righteousness, not wickedness. For sin shall no longer be your master. 
because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Being under grace means sin is not your master, Jesus is. So why should we go on sinning? So we get more grace? No. It's not even close to the point. Because of grace, the, the, the stronghold, the chain of sin, the, 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 the depression of it, the bondage of it, you're free from it. It's not your master anymore. When you were buried with Christ, the old man passed away. And when you came up out of that baptism water, you came up brand new. So go on sinning. Jude's like, go on sinning. Go, go on. That is not even the point of grace. Go on sinning. So the second thing I want you to know is that ungodly grace grants you to have gross misconduct and still be good. And that kind of grace misses the entire point. There is teaching that is going around in Christian circles, this hyper-grace movement. But Jude, it seems as though those that teach this forgot the one-hit wonders, and they, for, and they skipped over this tiny book in the back of the New Testament called Jude. They've skipped over Romans 5 and 6, John, 2 John and 3 John. Because ungodly grace, it grants you to have gross misconduct, but you're still good. But that's the very thing that Jesus gave his life to free you from. So it can no longer be your master. The, encountering the grace of God can lead you to being free from bondages of addiction. It can lead you to being free from depression and disparity. It can get you free from jealousy and anger. It can get you free from the lust that has bound to you for years. It can do that. Why encounter the grace of God to still be a slave to sin? So ungodly grace grants you to have gross misconduct, but still calls you good. So in a similar way, Jude 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a city that we read about in Genesis chapter 17. It was a couple cities. It was a place full of violence, full of injustice, full of sexual immorality. So in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. And they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This punishment of eternal, eternal fire, uh, for many, these are hard verses, hard words to grasp. Punishment, eternal fire. Um, what does that mean? Yes, it means hell. And hell is real. Sodom and Gomorrah were, were punished severely for their gross misconduct, for their sin. They, God actually rained down uh, fire on the city and destroyed it by fire. And Judah is saying, Let that, that is an example to us 
of how severely God deals with immorality with this punishment of eternal fire. In other words, it's important to remember, regardless of our feelings, that there are true consequences to sin. Romans 3.23 makes it clear, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is Jesus, whose death, burial, and resurrection offer us now forgiveness of sin, that we too may die to our old selves and live again anew. But I, and I know the question. You've likely asked it. I've asked it. Many young people ask the question. How can a good God send people to hell? Well, question for you, a question to, to challenge that very question, is that did God go out of his way to send people to hell? Or did he go out of his way to save people from it? So how can a good God send, and sometimes people are okay with sending an evil person to hell. <laughs> but they're like, but how can a good God send a good person to hell? To which I would say, what do you mean by good? Because <laughs> none of us are good. Romans tells us that basically we are all by nature are subject to wrath. In other words, if you hit the factory reset button on humanity, we all deserve hell. But God's response to our sin, God's response to eternal punishment is simply this. How can God send how can God send people to hell? Good God. How can a good God send people to hell? I think this is God's response. You can go to hell over my dead body. You could go to hell. But you're going to have to reject my son. You can go to hell. But I want you to go to hell realizing I did everything in my power. I bankrupt heaven. I sent my son. He lived the perfect life you never could. And then he took the criminal's death that you deserved so that you could have the free gift of eternal life. So go to hell over my dead body. That's God's response. So how can a good God send people to hell that way? By doing everything in his power to get you off the ledge and you still take this step off. That's how. So I implore you, take the free gift. His name is Jesus. And live again. Flee from sin. And live free. And that is grace. Grace is not a license for immorality, as Jude says. Grace leads to liberty and it'll transform your life. 
Judah also describes additional wayward believers. Again, he is addressing this letter to true believers, saying, watch out for these false believers. And here are your responses. He goes on, he talks about additional wayward believers. These are deceivers among the church that are causing division, causing separation, and, and, and that, that, that uh, they cause a drift in the church. And Jude is warning true believers to look out for them. In Jude 16, this is what it says. It says, dear friends, it says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. These people, these are deceivers. The funny thing about deceivers is they themselves are truly deceived. They don't know they're deceiving. And there are deceivers in the church, and they sound like grumblers. They're deceivers because they're disrupting the unity of Christ's church. They're deceivers because they are causing division where God brought unity. He says we are all one body, one form. These people that you need to be on the watch for are grumblers, complainers, fault finders, These people sit in the rows of churches all around the world that they hear the word of God being preached, but they sit there being critical of what they're hearing. They're critical of the way the pastor said it. These people, they're they're involved in life groups, but they're, they're critical of the leader. They're critical of the person they sit next to. They they watch people go by and they're critical of the way they dress. They're critical of the way they parent. They are a fault finder, which means They find faults with other people, but love keeps no record of wrong, does it? These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. If I was in charge, it would look different around here. I bet you that I should have done that and not them. I think they should listen to me. Yeah, these are, we love ourselves, don't we? boast about themselves, and they flatter others to their own advantage. In other words, hey, I've noticed that you're all right. And with flattery, we win people over to our side of the argument. We lead with flattery. I'm going to flatter people. Tell them, oh, you're awesome. Come to my side, and let's grumble together. And Jude is saying, Watch out. Judas saying, contend for the faith. We tell people this all the time in our church of, of how to handle people like this with truth and love like we talked about two weeks ago. When you encounter a grumbler, you always ask him a question. Have you talked to them about that? Have you gone to them one-on-one? Have you asked them? Sister so-and-so, have you talked to sister so-and-so? I want to stop you right there if you don't mind. Uh, I don't want to hear any more details because it doesn't seem like I need to know. But I really want to encourage you, sounds like you have an offense towards sister so-and-so. You should go talk to her directly. Have you done that? No, she would never listen to me. Well, would you like me to go with you to have that conversation? I see her right over there. We can go talk to her. That's how you contend 
Jude 17. I'm doing great on time, by the way. It says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there would be scoffers. You, you want a synonym for scoffers? I already got one. Ridiculers. You've heard it said that in the last times there would be ridiculers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And these people, these are the people who divide you, these ridiculers, these fault finders, these critics. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, but you do not have the spirit because it's a spirit of unity. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I want you to watch a couple of things of what he's saying here. He says, but you, build yourselves up because you have to be built up to contend. How so? Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Holy means to be set apart. Holiness is that we are set apart from the ways of the world. Holiness is living without the master of sin. Holiness is is living in obedience to the word of God. He says, build yourselves up by a life of holiness and of faith and praying in the Spirit. When we read about praying, praying in the Spirit, we know that praying in the Spirit, it edifies yourself. It builds you up. Many times uh, on Sunday, uh, when I'm doing my last second preparation before I come out here, uh, I'm in my office, I'm holding my Bible and I stand there for a few minutes and I simply pray in the Spirit in, in preparation. There, there are times when maybe I have, um, even when I worked in the corporate world, I had a big presentation, a big meeting, a, a hard conversation to have. I'd close myself in my office and I'd pray in the Spirit. He says, build yourselves up with Holy living, faithful living, pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy. And then it goes on, and here, here's where we see how we treat lost people. We've been reading about how to contend for the faith amongst false believers. But watch this, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To show others mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. In other words, hating even the slightest sign of sin. Don't get, don't get contaminated, but rescue lost people showing mercy. 
be merciful to those who doubt, saving others by snatching them from the fire. So unbelievers are those who doubt. Those that are lost are on a pathway to punishment by fire. And how do we treat them? Not with contentment. Not by argument. Not with debate. And not by battle. But with mercy. Contend for the faith, yes. Because there are false teachers. There are deceivers. So contend for the faith. Fight for unity amongst you. But for the lost people, don't use contentment. Use mercy. Because ultimately, if you remember, the book of Romans says it like this, that the kindness of God leads people to repentance, not his wrath. The kindness of God leads people to repentance, not his judgment. So the tool that God uses to reach lost people, to have them repent, in other words, to turn from their life of sin, he uses mercy. He uses his grace. He uses love. And in doing so, people are rescued from eternal fire. The third thing then is that we are called to stand firm. To stand firm. The worship team is going to come help me out here in a second. You guys want to get in place. We are called to stand firm. Standing firm doesn't have to look like standing mean. Standing angry. But standing firm. Contend for the faith. Strive for holiness. Fight temptation. Move towards unity. Watch that you don't become a ridiculer, a, a critic, or a complainer. And don't settle for going with the flow of your feelings, trying to reconcile the message of Jesus to the world but mercifully helping people of the world being reconciled to Jesus. We're called to stand. And so I want to ask you to stand with me as we conclude. And if you would with me, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? Jude's a small little book. One chapter, a little one-hit wonder of the Bible, but it has a lot of content, a lot of things we went over today. Ultimately, it points a lot to salvation in Jesus, being rescued from fire, being set free from sin. And so I think it begs us to, the first step we take right now is to offer anyone here today the opportunity to receive a gift. Not the first time guest gift in the back. Far sweeter. The gift of grace. The gift of grace will erase all 
your gross misconduct. The gift of grace will set you free from the slave master of sin. And it's simple. You don't have to work for it. You just have to receive it like a gift and receive it by faith. And if you are here this morning and either you're, you're ready to admit, I need to get my life right again, or I need to follow Jesus for the first time ever, this moment is for you. And there's a gift waiting for you. And in order to receive it, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raises from the dead, that we will be saved. For it's with the heart that we confess and are justified, and it's with the mouth and the heart that we believe in are saved. And so all you have to do today is just confess to God, not to me. Don't confess to me. Confess to God your need for him. Ask him for forgiveness and tell him that you are ready to take the journey and following Jesus. I'm going to pray in a moment, and you can pray with me. You can pray in the quietness of your own heart, words like mine, or, word, or how, whatever your words want to be, but it should sound something like this. Father, I recognize that I am lost. I recognize I need to get my life right. I need to get things in order. And I recognize if I'm going to get things in order, I have to start with you. And I ask God that you would forgive me all of my failures. I need grace because I can't do it on my own. I want eternal life that comes from the gift of Jesus. And I don't know all the answers to the questions I have right now. I still have questions unanswered, but I'm willing to take the journey of faith and I want to start right now by committing my life to you, inviting you into my life again. Would you forgive me and set me free? In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer or a prayer like that, all of heaven right now is erupting with applause because somebody just stepped off the edge and have been rescued can we all now celebrate together for lives changed that Jesus is setting people free from the slave master of sin? Amen. I want to read to you as you leave today the latter part of Jude. This is what it says. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a blessed week. We'll see you Sunday.